0: The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. This morning we continue our study on questions, and uh, the question this morning is, can we trust the Bible? Uh, We have a friend of mine, Dan Wallace. Dan is a senior research professor at Dallas Seminary. Uh, He has a wife, Patty, four sons, Noah Benjamin, Andrew, and Zachary. Andrew and Zachary are twins, A and Z. Uh, The Alpha and Omega, he said, uh, they named him that way. So uh, we're grateful for that. And a Labrador retriever. So as he's coming up, would you welcome Dan Wallace, my uh, friend. As Dan is coming up, I want to do two things. First of all, uh, Bill and Christy Bowers, would you guys stand up? These are our missionaries in the Middle East. Let's give them a warm TBC welcome. Thank you guys for serving the Savior. I'm not sure if Mark and Mariana Lanford are here this morning. Mark and Mariana, are you, are you guys out there? They are also missionaries in the Middle East. They are back in the States. And uh, many of you guys continue. We continue to fight. We continue to pray. Uh, you know my status. And uh, you can read about it in the bulletin. We recognize we serve a great God. I've got a lot of fight in me. And uh, we're going to seek to serve the Savior. Thank you. But I'm also... I am also submissive to the will of the Father, and uh, so we're going to follow him, we're going to exalt him every single day. Four years ago, I asked you to hold my hands up, and uh, God has given us four more years than we thought we might have, and so we continue to fight MD Anderson tomorrow for a second opinion, and uh, then decisions made next week on how to treat this stuff. So I've got a time bomb ticking, I'm ready to get that sucker out of here and uh, do it. When I first was diagnosed, I said, Lord, I'd love to see LSU win another national championship before you take me to glory. And uh, I should have been more specific, a football championship, not baseball. so <laughs> I, I don't know. We'll see. Dan, welcome. Welcome, Dan Wallace, one more time.
1: Thanks. Steve. Good, morning. Good morning. Good to see you all again. I was here four years ago, and uh, shortly after I was here, I went off to Dublin, Ireland to photograph some of the oldest manuscripts of the New Testament in the world, including this uh, photograph you see right in front of you, uh, one leaf of the oldest manuscript of Paul's letters. There's 86 leaves of it, and they're at the uh, Dublin castle at the Chester Beatty Library from the second century. Remarkable. Uh, so we, we photographed these, and uh, my uh, institute, which is known as the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, we're making them uh, uh, we're getting them published in three-volume set later, later in the year, in about a year, so that the whole world can see these things. Gary, thank you for that introduction. I, I appreciate all that you made up about my children's names. Um, <laughs> Noah, Ben, Andrew, and Zachary. A to Z, Alpha to Omega. I, I don't know where you got any of that, because you got all their names wrong. Every single one. But, <laughs> You you don't listen very well. Just like when you were my student, you still don't… I know, I know. Our our boys, my wife and I, have been married 43 years, and (laughs) we… We just had our first grandson on Wednesday. And uh, we have three granddaughters, and now he's going to be pampered for the rest of his life. But… uh, he was not uh, the son of Andrew. I don't have a son named Andrew. Our, our, our children are named after people in the Bible, very biblical names, because we're a godly couple. Of course, you have to name your kids after people in the Bible if you want to claim to be godly. Um, <laughs> but all of them are named after characters in Revelation chapter 6, death, pestilence, famine, and disease. <laughs> Every once in a while, I'd take one of my boys with me when I go speaking, and pestilence would be in my train, and there would be disease after I left. But as you can see, never did famine accompany me. (laughs) The question I want to ask today is how badly did the scribes corrupt the New Testament? It's not a question of whether they corrupted the New Testament. We didn't get our Bibles faxed from heaven to us, put on a printing press so that there were no changes whatsoever. They were hand-copied for centuries. Until 1516, our first printed Greek New Testament was published. Up until then, it was all handwritten copies, letter by letter, word by word, and it would typically take a scribe about a year to copy out an entire New Testament there were mistakes. There's always going to be mistakes because they were done uh, by human beings. They would get fatigued, careless. They had poor hearing at times, poor eyesight, sloppy penmanship sometimes. And at other times, they even deliberately changed the text. But the question we have to ask is how badly did they corrupt the New Testament? That's a question that's being answered by a lot of folks today And I want to give you just a sample of of three or four quotes to begin with and then show you what the real evidence is. Let me begin with a quotation from Kurt Eichenwald uh, in Newsweek. This came out, notice, December 23rd in Newsweek, 2014, the Bible so misunderstood it's a sin. Skeptics love to get things published in magazines and newspapers, on TV always right around Christmas time and Easter about the Christian faith and how Jesus really wasn't raised from the dead, and uh, there's all sorts of myths about His birth and about the Bible, and so this, the timing of this was no accident. Now, Newsweek presents things as fact. They often uh, offer opinions, but this was meant to be a sober, serious article, and yet it's frankly, one of the most ridiculous assertions that I've ever seen made about the Bible. In his section, Playing Telephone with the Word of God, Eichenwald introduces this section on textual criticism, which is the field of trying to determine the exact wording of the original text of some document. In my case, the New Testament is what I I, I work on. Uh, And uh, to do it by examination of the existing manuscripts. So he introduces this with this title, Playing Telephone with the Word of God. Now, what he has to say is a statement that is, I'd say, the worst kind of falsehood, in part because it's made by somebody who knows absolutely nothing of this topic, and because he takes uh, scholars at what they've said and then exaggerates their claims. So ironically, you, know, you all know what the telephone game is, ironically, what Eichenbault does in this, in this statement is he has just played the telephone game where he garbled the message, even though he's claiming that's what's happened with the Bible. Here's the statement. No television preacher has ever read the Bible. Neither has any evangelical politician. Well, that may be the case. Um, (laughs) Neither has the Pope. Neither have I, and neither have you. Is this a revelation to you, you've never read the Bible? At best, at best we've all read a bad translation. A translation of translations of translations of hand-copied copies of copies of copies of copies and on and on hundreds of times. So, at best, we have a third-generation translation that's terrible, copied from another bad translation, Copied from another bad translation, and then it goes back to the original text, but still it's copied hundreds of times before we get to see any of these copies. Well, let's see if this is true. But I also want to reveal the source where Eichenwald got this information. He is certainly not a biblical scholar, he's a journalist. But atheists are also joining the chorus. You may not have heard of C. J. Werleman interesting fellow. He wrote, he likes to write books with provocative titles like Jesus Lied, He Was Only Human, and he has Jesus hooked up to a lie detector test here. Uh, his first book was God Hates You, Hate Him Back. Now, Werleman is an atheist. Isn't that an ironic title for an atheist? Doesn't he really mean nothing hates you, hate nothing back? I mean, it just seems kind of strange. Well, here's what Werleman has to say in this one. We do not have any of the original manuscripts of the Bible. The originals are lost. So far, he's absolutely correct. We don't know when and we don't know by whom. Agreed. What we have are copies of copies. I also would agree with that. In some instances, the copies are 20th generation copies. He made that one up out of thin air. There's no basis whatsoever for that kind of a copy or a statement unless we're talking about the later copies when we still have the earlier copies of those. Now, it's not just uh, atheists and journalists, but uh, Muslims are also uh, joining the choir. This is M.M. Al-Azmi, who's one of the most uh, popular British Muslim apologists, and uh, he wrote a book called The History of the Quranic Text from Revelation to Compilation, and he compares it with the Old and New Testament. So, in a statement here, about the copying of the text and the corruption of the text. He says, the Orthodox Church being the sect, which eventually established supremacy over all the others, and what he means is the Bible you're reading today is based on this particular group that has destroyed the other groups that had a different uh, copy of Scripture, uh, stood in fervent opposition to various ideas, also known as heresies, which were in circulation. These included adoptionism, the notion that Jesus was not God, but a man. Docetism, the opposite view, that he was God and not man. And separationism, that the divine and human elements of Jesus Christ were two separate beings. In each case, this sect, the one that would rise to become the Orthodox Church, deliberately corrupted the Scriptures so as to reflect its own theological visions of Christ while demolishing that of all rival sects. You may have heard that some people have have argued that Emperor Constantine in the fourth century invented the deity of Christ. And I'll actually show you a quote that suggests that a little bit later. But these, these myths are promoted as though they're truth And today, I want to lay out some of the evidence for you. I don't want to just say, well, believe me, don't believe them. I'm going to show you some evidence. But here's the starting question that I ask, and that is, where in the world did these non-biblical scholars get their information? Well, they get it from biblical scholars who write popular books. And by far, the most influential of these is Misquoting Jesus by Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman is a Wheaton graduate Moody Bible Institute graduate. He went to Princeton Seminary for his master's and doctorate. He studied under the great evangelical scholar Bruce Metzger, who was perhaps the best 20th century uh, textual critic uh, in the world. And uh, Bart moved away from an evangelical faith to a broader uh, liberal kind of faith towards agnosticism until a year ago he declared he was an atheist. I've known Bart for 35 years. We're friends, we work together, we, uh, we're, we work on projects together, uh, get published in the same books, uh, he was an editor for a couple of the books that I uh, contributed to, and we've debated a few times as well. But this book, "Misquoting Jesus, when it came out in 2006, within three months, 100,000 copies were sold. It was really the first popular book on this arcane discipline, textual criticism. And he made it very, very interesting. It was his first book ever to get the New York Times best-selling list. So here's what he has to say here. And this is, I think, the primary source for the quotations that I just read for you. Not only do we not have the originals, we don't have the first copies of the originals. We don't even have copies of the copies of the originals or copies of the copies of the copies of the originals. Doesn't that sound like what Werleman said? And you know, I can vault. Except Eichenwald said, we don't even have copies of copies of copies, goes on hundreds of times, and we have a third generation bad translation of a bad translation of a bad translation. But that, all that he made up. So Ehrman also adds, the more I studied the manuscript tradition of the New Testament, the more I realized just how radically the text had been altered over the years at the hands of the scribes. It would be wrong to say, as people sometimes do, that the changes in our text have no real bearing on what the texts mean or on the theological conclusions that one draws from them. This sounds like M.M. al that the, the early church has radically changed the text. We can't possibly get back to the original. Well, as I get into the, the details here, I wanna suggest that there are two attitudes that we must avoid. Some of you here are not Christians. And I urge you to hold to a middle ground between these two attitudes. Some of you, probably most of you, are Christians. I would assume so. Unless Gary's been starting a cult, I'm not sure, but I don't think that's the case. Oh, that's going to go out on, on video. I, I, this is not a cult church, folks. This is normal. So. <laughs> Here's the first attitude to avoid, radical skepticism. We can't possibly know. Well, really? There's tons of evidence out there, and I'm going to be presenting some of it to you. Some of it will be over your head, but you're, are you uh, taping this for, uh, to show later to the church? It's being live streamed be the other website. Right? Okay, that, that, that'll do it. So... Um, Radical skepticism. We can't possibly know what the original said. We already got some statements along those lines. Stay away from that attitude because it is not logical and it's against all of the empirical evidence we have. But the other attitude is absolute certainty. And this is the one that Christians are more susceptible to. For example, the Apostle Paul's King James Bible was up for auction recently. Don't know if you noticed that, June 20th it came up, and it's, uh, it's selling for $10 million. I mean, this is the actual King James Bible that the Apostle Paul used. Sometimes in Arkansas when I speak about uh, this topic, I, I talk to some folks, well, you know, if the King James is good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me, and, the, and they're serious, And so, uh, we just have to start talking about some other topic. (laughs) How about them cowboys, you know, those Dallas Cowboys? (laughs) (laughs) I just posted this on my Facebook site just a few days ago, and there were some comments. Is this true? (laughs) We all know about some of these folks that hold to views that are rather extreme like that. King James-only people who say, this is the only Bible there is. Everything else cannot be called the Bible. And they say, absolutely, this is the truth. Of course, the King James Bible has changed in about 100,000 places since 1611. Most of them very minor changes about spelling differences. However, if you use a modern translation, it doesn't matter which one you use. You might use the ESV. You might use the NIV, you might use HCSB, New American Standard Bible, it doesn't matter which one you use, Bibles change. That translation that was done in 1984, for example, the NIV, it was revised. Now we have a NIV 2011. Bibles change because the language... In a, in a living culture, changes. We have to accommodate to that without changing the message, but changing the wording so it can relate to people at that time. For example, older translations would say brethren, and what they really meant was brothers and sisters. And in fact, the Greek word for brothers also means brothers and sisters. So modern translations have now expanded on that to include women. Uh, Some women have felt, gee, we're not even being addressed in this congregation. And so some modern translations are gender inclusive. Older ones, frankly, were gender exclusive. But if you have a modern translation and it's come out with a second edition or even some minor tweakings, then how can you claim this is the one right here that is absolutely the Word of God in every single point. You can't do that. The NIV 2011, for example, changed the text, even the text that they were translating, not just some of the translation principles, but the text they were translating in the New Testament in about two dozen places. So in two dozen places, if you held to the 1984 NIV, you'd be wrong about what the original text said. We have to be careful about the kinds of claims we make, and can we be absolutely certain that in every single detail what's in our hands today is the Word of God? The answer is no. But do we need to be completely skeptical? The answer is definitely no. Where should we land on this? And what I want to give to you is the evidence. I realize this makes some of you Christians, and I'm a Christian, feel a little bit uncomfortable, but this is the stuff that we need to think about as we wrestle with these things. Okay, there's four questions I want us to answer, and uh, this first one will take up the majority of the time, we'll get to the last three at about 12, 12.30, something like that. <laughs> How many textual variants are there? And I'll have to define what that is, the differences among the manuscripts. What kinds of textual variants are there, the, ki- the nature of these uh, textual discrepancies? What theological beliefs depend on textually suspect passages? You'd kind of like to know, is the virgin birth something that's always taught? Are there some places where some manuscripts say, there is no way Jesus was born of a virgin? I, I Believe me, I've looked at a few manuscripts over the years. Uh, I, I've just finished looking at uh, half a million pages of Greek New Testament manuscripts uh, just uh, a few weeks ago. I've, I've hit that number now, I think. Uh, and I have I've yet to come across something like that. What theological beliefs depend on textually suspect passages, that's pretty important. And finally, to kind of sum it all up, has the essence of the Christian faith been corrupted by the scribes? So, we have a couple of preliminary questions, and the first one is, well, don't we have the original text anymore? The answer to that is, no, we definitely do not. It must have turned to dust, all these letters and gospels and the book of Acts and Revelation must have turned to dust within a few decades of writing not because papyrus wears out that quickly, this is what all the ancient manuscripts were written on is papyrus rolls, but instead because it was being copied over and over and over again. And if you have a book that people are handling and examining and copying, it's gonna wear out a whole lot faster than if it just sits on your shelf. And so the originals must have disappeared within a few decades. Well, okay, so we don't have the original text, but what about the copies? Don't they agree with each other? Therefore, we can say this is what the original text said. No, all the manuscripts disagree with each other. You take the two most closely related manuscripts from the first 800 years of the, of the Christian era, they have between six and 10 differences per chapter. That's per chapter. You extrapolate that out of the whole New Testament, that, that would be about 2,000 differences. And those are the two most closely related manuscripts. So because the originals have disappeared, and because the copies disagree with each other, we have to do a thing known as textual criticism. And the one to blame here is God. He's put us in this situation. And you have to ask yourself, why has he done that? Why didn't he just preserve the originals? Okay, well, that's the the area we're going to get into. But here's uh, another preliminary question, what is a textual variant? It's any place among the manuscripts in which there is variation in wording, including word order, omission or addition of words, even spelling differences. All these count as textual variants. Now, how many variants do we actually have among our manuscripts? Here's a way to put it into perspective. Bart Ehrman likes to use this. It's a great illustration. We have about 140,000 words in the Greek New Testament. To be more precise, we have 138,162. That won't be on the test, though. How many variants do we have? Well, about 400,000 was the most, or, 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 or a good recent estimate. Until an article came out two years ago by one of my students who went on to get his PhD at Cambridge University, and he upped the ante. He said, now it's about half a million. Traitor. So, um, still a fine evangelical, still believes in the word of God. How can he do that with all these variants? You got three or four variants on average for every word in the New Testament? Well, we might as well just pitch the faith and go do something else, right? This is uh, about as much as you get from the skeptics. Look at all these variants. How can you possibly get back to the original? Well, now I want to start giving you a positive message. Or it looks like my time's up. Maybe let's just close in prayer, shall we? <laughs> All right. The reason we have a lot of textual variants is that we have a lot of manuscripts. If the New Testament existed in just one copy today, it would not disagree with itself, so there'd be no variance. As soon as you add a second copy, now there's variance. What if you had copies that were written at the same time what if I dictated to this congregation, say, Paul's letter to Philemon, and then I gathered up all of your copies and examined them? I bet I could reconstruct the original text to Philemon pretty easily, even though almost all of you would have mistakes, or say even the Gospel of Matthew. I'd be able to do it because I can con- compare these contemporary uh, copies and see the kinds of accidental errors that were made, the kinds of intentional errors. But if you have more copies, you have a better chance of recovering the original. In the year 1707, a scholar by the name of John Mills, working at Oxford University, had spent his entire adult life, 30 years, going through as many Greek New Testament manuscripts and quotations by church fathers and ancient translations as he possibly could, And he put together a text where he listed all of these textual variants. He came up with 30,000 textual variants. This is uh, back in 1707. Well, John Mill timed his book to come out at exactly the right time, because two weeks to the day he died after that. The reason that's the right time is now he doesn't have to deal with all of his critics. And and he had plenty. Roman Catholics were laughing at this, saying, look, you guys have a paper pope and he has footnotes. How do we know when he's speaking ex cathedra? And Protestants were saying, what John Mill did was the work of the devil. Historical research is the work of the devil? Well, that's, that's, that's the work of God. That's what we need to be doing. The incarnation of Jesus Christ gives us a methodological imperative to examine the data precisely because he became man in space-time history, we have the permission and the right and the necessity to examine the data for ourselves rather than just take it by faith. uh, Six years after John Mill wrote this, Richard Bentley defended it, and he is universally known as a great textual critic hundreds of years ahead of his time. He said, if there had been but one manuscript to the Greek New Testament at the restoration of learning about two centuries ago, then we would have had no various readings at all. And would the text be in a better condition then than it is now that we have 30,000 variant readings? It is good, therefore, to have more anchors than one, and another manuscript to join the first would give more security, more authority as well as security. Bentley had less than 100 manuscripts and he found 30,000 variants. This is a significant point. Uh, what, or, I mean, uh, Mill had that. Bentley said, even with all these variants, that doesn't hurt the faith, it actually strengthens it because it helps us to recover the original wording. Well, what kind of numbers are we dealing with? It has been said that New Testament scholars are dealing with an embarrassment of riches, while scholars of other classical texts are dealing with a dearth of evidence. In terms of Greek manuscripts, that's what the New Testament was originally written in, we have 5,843. And by the way, the average size Greek New Testament is more than 450 pages long. That's the average size. But I need to give a little correction, and you're the first ones to hear this correction because I was just in Greece a couple of weeks ago, it was my 29th trip, and um, I've never gone for vacation there. I hear it's a wonderful place. Uh, but I I go to monasteries and libraries and things. But uh, in the last two and a half years, we've discovered 22 more Greek New Testament manuscripts, my my institute has. And I discovered one in a monastery that uh, I'll let out later. But now you know, the latest numbers are 5,865. Now, let's say sometime this week, you're at Starbucks, and a skeptic engages you in conversation, and they say, OK, I know that there are 5,843 manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. That probably won't happen, but you can correct them say, no, 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 actually there's 5,865. You need to keep up with your data. So my, my institute, CSNTM, has discovered 92 manuscripts in the last 15 years, which is more than all the rest of the institutes in the, in the world have discovered. God has blessed this tiny institute, and it's starting to ha- stand at the head of the stream of all future translations of the New Testament, because we take photographs of these manuscripts and uh, give them freely to scholars. If we didn't have any Greek New Testament manuscripts, we'd still have translations in a variety of languages. We have over 10,000 of the New Testament translated into Latin. Latin other ancient versions we have manuscripts in georgian coptic syriac gothic armenian arabic uh, old church slavonic and the best minimal evidence uh, minimal numbers about 5000 to 10000 so among all these these witnesses these copies of the new testament we have between 20 and 25000 handwritten copies of the new testament and by the way we are not relying on a translation of a translation of a translation of the greek we are relying on the greek directly. So that shows that Eichenwald doesn't really know what he's talking about, at least on one level. If you had a magic wand and could erase all these manuscripts in a fell swoop, we still would not be left without a witness, and that's because of church fathers who quoted the text starting in the late first century all the way through the 13th, and we are still tabulating how many times they quoted the New Testament and how much they had to say. I think uh, there's this institute in Boyron, Germany that's doing it. They have gone through maybe the sixth century, they've got a long, long way to go, but the quotations from the New Testament by the church fathers come so far to well over a million. Now there's 7,941 verses in the New Testament, so I don't know how many that makes uh, these quotations come to, but typically they're about a verse or half a verse long. But the point is that you could construct virtually the entire New Testament many, many times over just from the quotations by the church fathers. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Now just a real one-slide segue. This is the center I've been talking about, Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts and we have a website. Now, you don't need to write any of this down because you'll remember it from this. It's a website where we are making the images free for all and free for all time. We've got half a million pages of manuscripts that we've digitized on there using state-of-the-art equipment. If you remember who C.S. Lewis is, probably you've heard of him. You've got the first two initials. And if you've ever watched The Wizard of Oz, you know who Auntie M is. C.S. Auntie M went over the head of most of you csntm you know and and anyway so some of you must be from louisiana gee all right <laughs> just remember those initials csntm.org.com it doesn't matter you'll you'll get there well let me go back to comparing this embarrassment of riches we have in the new testament with the average classical work the average classical Greek writer has less than 15 copies of his work still in existence. You stack them up, and they're four feet high at most, about the size of a podium. So here's, here's giving you a visual representation of this. We have this podium, and that's about four feet high. So how high would the New Testament stack be? Well, how about the Empire State Building in New York City? I had to add New York City to some of you who are, are not skilled at geography, but… Um, <laughs> and I won't mention where you're from but uh, anyway I, now actually, I actually worked on this and made it to scale so here you go this is that podium you see? do you all see that dot up there it's there I, I can't see it but it's, it's a speck that's four feet tall the New Testament that's the Empire State Building 1454 feet tall But if you stack those New Testament manuscripts up, and I'm not counting the church fathers' quotations, it's more than one empire state building. Look at what we'd have. It's four and a half of these puppies. 6,600 feet tall. If you stacked up our New Testament manuscripts, they'd go up more than a mile and a quarter high. So, here I am a scholar of uh, Polybius or something like this, I've got a stack about this high. In the New Testament, it's you know a mile and a quarter high. It's just incredible what the difference is. Now, the Greco, let me just make a quick comparison. In fact, I'm gonna have to just put this slide up and I'm just gonna cut to the chase to one of these. I looked at some Greco-Roman historians and biographers who uh, the first uh, three or four are at the same time as the New Testament first-century authors, and then you get to some of these others and we're waiting for any copies of Pliny the Elder, 700 years, Plutarch 800 years, Josephus 800 years before we get a single copy. And the last two, Herodotus and Xenophon, these are folks who are huge writers from the fourth and fifth century B.C and uh, Herodotus is called the the, the father of history, we are waiting 1,500 years before we get more than just a few papyrus scraps of his great-volume histories. For Xenophon, we're waiting 1,800 years before we get more than just some papyrus leaves of Hellenica. Certainly not nearly enough to put much of it together. Now, if the New Testament was waiting that long before we had any copies... That would be like saying, we've just got a a few scraps of papyrus until the time that the Wright brothers invented the airplane. Then I think skeptics might have a point. You know, you guys, you say you go back, have the original testament, our earliest manuscripts are from 1903. Yeah, that would be a problem. And yet, for the scholars of Xenophon, that's all they have. And they say, we think it's pretty close. So at least let's compare apples with apples when we're looking at the data. Does this make sense to you all? I know this is a lot to digest. Uh, I apologize for that. Most of this won't be on the test, I don't think. You're going to make it kind of simple three-point question. Thirty-three points of the quest of uh, the greater, based on each, something like that. So uh, well let me talk to you briefly about the date of New Testament manuscripts. And I'm just going to talk to you about our earliest discovery. It's known as P52, Papyrus number 52. This was discovered in 1934 in a shoebox by C.H. Roberts studying at uh, Manchester University in England. His predecessor had been working through a number of papyri and when he finally quit he left these uh, manuscripts for uh, Roberts to continue to look at. And he looked at this scrap, the size of a credit card, very tiny scrap, and he looked at it, and on one side, it had John chapter 18, this side, verses 31 through 33, at least parts of it, and on the back side, John 18, 37 and 38. Well, that told him that this manuscript was not written on a scroll. It was written on a codex. A codex is our modern form of book. It's bound on one side. You have cut pages. You know, all your Bibles are a codex, not a scroll. Nobody. I didn't see anybody bring a scroll into church. The codex form was invented in the late first century. We don't know who invented it, but for the next 500 years, 94% of all Christian manuscripts were written on a codex. 13% of all non-Christian manuscripts were written on a codex for for the next 500 years. So for the only time in the history of the Christian church, we were actually ahead of the technological curve, but at least we were. And so the rest of the world caught up. When he saw this, he said, oh my gosh, this is an early codex. He sent photographs to three leading scholars in Europe, said, what date would you give to this? And every one of them said, no later than A.D. 150, as early as 100. A fourth said, it might be in the 90s of the first century. Well, there had been a scholar 90 years earlier, a German scholar who said, John's gospel can't be dated any earlier than A.D. 160, and he opted for 170 on the basis of philosophical constructs, not on the basis of evidence. Here's an ounce of evidence that proved that ton of speculation dead wrong. In fact, I'd say that for the most part, here's here's what I learned growing up in, in, in Newport Beach. The surf in Dallas is terrible, by the way, but um, my teachers used to say, generally speaking, the original of a document is written before copies of the document. Is that kind of what you're taught here, too? <laughs> it sent two tons of German scholarship that it held sway over Europe to the flames. So here's the point. An ounce of evidence is worth a pound of presumption. Let's deal with the evidence. Let's not deal with speculation. We have evidence on our side. We have history on our side. This is the most complicated slide I'm going to show you, and I'm going to, I won't even uh, explain it. We have lots and lots of manuscripts. Starting in the second century, you have 1,000 by the time we get to the 10th century, and the average classical author doesn't even have, uh, in 2,000 years, doesn't have what we have in 200 years. And we're waiting about uh, 500 to 1,000 years before we get a single copy of these classical authors. Okay, has the Bible been translated and retranslated so many times that we don't know what it originally said? Obviously, we can't say that because we're not basing it just on these translations. The King James, for example, was based essentially on eight Greek manuscripts. Today we have 5,800 plus. Their oldest was 11th century. We still have those same manuscripts, by the way. They don't get copied and then destroyed, we still have them. And our manuscripts now go back to the second century. So the bottom line is, as time goes on, we are getting closer and closer to the original text. Now that was our first question, the rest of them we gotta really move on. You guys are asking too many questions, so try to hustle. What kinds of textual variants are there? Well, 99% of them make absolutely no difference at all. For example, there's differences in spelling, And some of you didn't even see the mistake there. That's, that's, that's the really scary part. There was no dictionary that said, here's how you spell in the ancient world. And uh, there's other kinds of differences. I, I, ha- I came up with a question. In fact, I, I did this just a month after I was here four years ago, and I thought, how many ways are there to say John loves Mary in Greek? And so I, I spent eight hours trying to come up with this. Now, Every single one of these sentences is translated John loves Mary. So this is a a question for Greek geeks. There's word order differences. You can put it in any word order you want in Greek. The article, the word the with proper names can be used or not used, and we have the differences in spelling. Both John and Mary are spelled different ways. So here's how many ways you can say John loves Mary in Greek. You need to write this down. This will show up on the quiz. (laughs) every one of these translated John loves Mary. I hope you appreciate that. It did take eight hours. (laughs) And I had to work through, make sure no duplicates. Now, with conjunctions that are often untranslated, there's more ways to do it. Come on. 384 ways. I quit at that point. I felt I kind of proved my point. There's still more ways. It's not all the ways to say John loves Mary in Greek. Other legitimate word orders swell the numbers to over 500, and a different verb for loves mushrooms the numbers to nearly 1,200. What's the point of all this? Well, Bart Ehrman said, we could go on nearly forever talking about specific places in which the texts of the New Testament came to be changed either accidentally or intentionally. The example examples are not just in the hundreds, but in the thousands. That is absolutely true and totally irrelevant because they're, they're of this sort. Nobody, no texture critic wants to deal with those. It would cure the most hopeless insomniac if that's all we talked about, these, these completely trivial texture variants. If we can say John loves Mary over a thousand times in Greek without substantially changing the meaning, the number of textual variants for the New Testament is meaningless. What really counts is the nature of the variants. And so this uh, final slide on the nature of them, the smallest group of variants are those that are both meaningful and viable. That is, they have a good chance of going back to the original. And here's what it comes down to. Less than one-fifth of 1% of all the textual variants are both meaningful and viable. Those are the only ones that are worth talking about. That's what it is. It's that yellow dot in the corner that's that's representing the total of those 500,000 variants. I'm going to give you two, quickly. First of all is Mark 9, 29. This is a meaningful and a viable variant. Jesus' disciples tried to cast out some particularly pesky demons. They were unsuccessful. So they came to him, and Jesus said to them, This kind can only be cast out by prayer. Or, he said, this kind can only be cast out by prayer and fasting. Well, which did he say? Different manuscripts have different things. Most scholars are convinced that he said by prayer, period. And as you can see by just looking at me, I, I agree with that shorter reading. Um, but fasting might be part of it, too. And if you're an exorcist, you might head your bed and pray and fast. It won't, won't hurt you. Now, a little bit more significant one. Revelation 13, 18. This is a text everybody knows, everybody on the streets of anywhere knows 666. Let the one who has insight calculate the beast number, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Was it really? In recent years, two manuscripts, one that happens to be one of our most important manuscripts, and the other that happens to be our oldest manuscript of this passage, have come out that have the reading of the beast as 616. Now, that could really be interesting. If you Googled 666, you'd see all the crazies come out, and you'd say, these people actually are driving on our freeways, it's just, it's, it's frightening. But here's the point. Most scholars, even after they've examined this evidence, say, the number of the beast, we think it's 666, 616, that's the, the neighbor of the beast. He lives just a few doors down, you know. It depends what day it is, which reading I go with. I don't know what the original text of Revelation 13, 18 says. It's a meaningful and a viable variant. But how meaningful and how viable is it? Finally, what theological beliefs depend on textually suspect passages? And you have that great scholar Dan Brown and his Da Vinci Code. Have Sir Lee teebing say to Sophie, my dear, until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless, a mortal. He is talking about A.D. 325 when Emperor Constantine presided over, not really presided over, but started the Council of Nicaea that defined the deity of Christ But what Dan Brown is trying to argue, and many people believe, is that Constantine invented the deity of Christ. Nobody thought of Jesus as deity until then. Remember how I told you an ounce of evidence is worth a pound of presumption? Here's an ounce of evidence. It's our earliest manuscript of John 1.1 that we have from A.D. 200, and uh, it's a very well-known verse. Read along with me if you would. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Just like every other manuscript says. No matter what language, no matter what age, they all say the same thing. Now, this was written about 125 years before the Council of Nicaea. It's kind of hard to make the assertion that Constantine invented the deity of Christ unless he was maybe 175 years old at that council and he had v- invented it back here. No, it, it just doesn't stick. The deity of Christ was absolutely established, and to make those kinds of ridiculous claims that Constantine invented the deity of Christ, and yet that kind of stuff people actually believe, it's because they haven't looked at the evidence. Every single manuscript of John's gospel, no matter the date or the language, says virtually the same thing in John one. 1. Jesus is unequivocally called God. The same can be said for the major passages that affirm his deity, his virgin birth, his sinlessness, his death on a cross, bodily resurrection, second coming, and so on. Now to wrap up, has the essence of the Christian faith been corrupted by the scribes? Let me give you two quotes and then we'll, we'll call it quits. And Gary, I apologize for going a little bit too long Next time I'll go a little bit longer. (laughs) Eighty years ago, Sir Frederick Kenyon, who is a great paleographer, that means he he studies these ancient manuscripts and just knows them very, very well, um, published a book called The Story of the Bible. And he says, it is reassuring at the end to find that the general result of all these discoveries and all this study is to strengthen the proof of the authenticity of the Scriptures and our conviction that we have in our hands in substantial integrity the veritable Word of God. Notice, he didn't say we have in our hands in every single particular, but in substantial integrity, and that should be good enough. There are places we're not sure, but most places, and the crucial places, it doesn't, it doesn't, they don't get affected. Now, it's not just a Christian like Sir Frederick Kenyon who said it, not just somebody who said it 80 years ago, Finally, I want to quote Bart Ehrman, the man whose works have been used to drive hundreds of thousands of people away from the faith. This is the appendix to his paperback version of misquoting Jesus. He was asked, why do you believe these core tenets of Christian orthodoxy to be in jeopardy based on the scribal errors you discovered in the biblical manuscripts? Ehrman was just kind of summarizing this, and what he had to say is mind-boggling. Essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. Wow, that's kind of different from what it seemed like he was saying earlier. I couldn't agree with him more. And every time we've debated, I've ended with this quote from Bart. Now, let me conclude with an unnatural segue, and that is a polar bear attacks a man in Canada. Totally irrelevant to what we're talking about. Bystanders do nothing, and the media didn't even report the event. I want you to close your eyes for just a second and imagine what this polar bear attack looks like. Nobody's closing their eyes. Come on, do this. Okay. Now you can open your eyes. That was a true statement. Polar bear attacks man may have uh, dethreaded a couple of uh, the lines of his 501 blues. You know, we're not sure, but when you hear 500,000 textual variants for the New Testament, think the New Testament is being attacked by a polar bear, <laughs> kind of like this one. It really doesn't matter. So at the end of the day, what we have in our hands, in all substantial points, and the vast majority of particulars and in all essential doctrines, and even the non-essential doctrines, is the very Word of God. Thank you so much for your attention.
0: Thank you, brother. We appreciate that. Man, I hope you walk out of here with greater confidence of what God has given you. Amen? Now, you know, after four years at Dallas Seminary, I lost my hair, too. What a delight. What a delight to be able to walk out and say, thank God for his word. Amen. amen. Father, thank you. Thank you that uh, truth, the truth we hold in our hand, your word, the living inspired word been given to us. And we are so grateful in the name of Jesus. Amen. Bless you
1: guys.